Well, to start us off, we can at least talk about what we did over the weekend because in Tampa, we have the third largest parade in the country <laughs> called Gasparilla. It was a giant pirate festival. We had the invasion of a real pirate ship where pirates invaded the convention center and forced the mayor to hand over the key to the city. Isn't the ship that they're sailing on like one of the last functional sailing ships in the world or something like that? I think so. <laughs> or like the largest that's still functioning? I think. It was also cool because we got to see a comedian named Bert Kreischer, uh, who's known as the Machine. Uh, the he, Machine. The Machine. Uh, he drove around the parade and he was tossing beads and he was doing it shirtless. And we were, I want to say like maybe 10, 15 feet away from him. So if it was really that, cool. If that much. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but it's basically a pirate-themed Mardi Gras where you collect mm-hmm. beads. You dress up. There's The downside to wearing a corset for a pirate fest is that I got sunburnt. Oh, yeah, all over your back. And we saw several people as we were walking over. With sun poisoning already yeah. at 1.30, even though the parades didn't start until 2. Actually, it was after we had parked and we were walking over. So on, only about 12.30. Yeah, so it was at 12.30. We, we saw people in alleys not doing too well. We actually passed by the EMS uh, emergency setup. And there were already people there. <laughs> there was already people there. And this is at like 12.30 in the afternoon. It's because it's right by University of Tampa. It's a huge party area. Yeah. People pregame. <laughs> On that note, we can go ahead and dive into today's topic, which is the CSI effect. Now, CSI effect, does that have anything to do with the TV show? It, the, the term was coined because of the TV show. Okay. Have I mentioned it before? I think you have. Uh, maybe not to me. You probably mentioned it to Kira. And so I'm still hearing it for the first time. Okay. So one of the main reasons that Live, Laugh, Livermortis was created was to educate people about the realities of forensic science and not fall victim to what's known as the CSI effect. The CSI effect itself is an umbrella term that covers multiple behaviors and actions related to viewers, quote unquote, learning from these types of shows, like true crime shows, not even, but CSI, NCIS, Hawaii Five-0, Bones. Brooklyn (laughs) Nine-Nine. They do detectives. Technically, yeah. But basically to help educate people, so to speak, to teach them like, hey, just because you saw it on TV, that's actually not what the case is yeah so it causes people to have unrealistic views and expectations of forensic science and the phenomenon can actually cause serious damage and harm when it starts to affect jurors but there are some advantages to the csi effect though okay the most welcomed outcome of the surge in csi shows is that more young people became interested in pursuing some of the careers shown in the television shows so like in the um uh, there's um again. <laughs> What's the show that your family really likes that has um, Abby? Uh, NCIS. N- yeah. Because I remember you mentioned that part of the reason you wanted to pursue a path in forensics was because you were inspired by that character in the show. Yes, but then I started doing research and listening to true crime shows that mm-hmm. actually focus on the, real- the realities of forensic science. Mm-hmm. But it still got you started on the path yeah. to like start questioning and start looking into things. And then you were able to find out, oh, this is actually not really what the job would be like, but I'm still interested. And it inspired me to look up to it. Yeah, because the whole the reason it's coined the CSI effect is because the TV show CSI came out, and everyone was was so big on watching the show and all of the techniques used. But we're gonna cover 
some discrepancies a little bit later. But as people become more and more intrigued by specific careers, such as forensic science, the enrollment rate in related college programs skyrocketed. Well, that's great for the field. Oh, yeah. It just makes it more competitive to find a job. And it's a pain in the butt for me trying to find a job in forensics. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of competition out there when before it wasn't. Yeah. So right what I was saying earlier is this in turn led to a higher rate of employment within those fields. Now, is there any sort of downside to a bunch of more applicants besides the competitive market? Could it be that there's not as much sites or as many positions that are needed or maybe they're underfunded? There you have a surplus of people wanting these jobs, but not near enough job openings. Demand is too high for the supply, so to speak. Exactly. Especially because a lot of people, once they get into crime scene and forensics, they tend to stay there. So there's not a super high turnover rate. Okay. So it's like you're in it for life, essentially. Essentially, yeah. Another positive outcome is that jurors in court have become knowledgeable about criminal-related legal knowledge and evidence-testing techniques. So it can allow for jurors to make more educated conclusions due to the fact that they are more likely to understand the evidence and techniques presented in court. Do you think it's because the media, in order to have like a higher retention rate to keep as many people and fans interested, they try to sort of dumb it down, so to speak, or make it so it's easier for like the common channel flipper to look at it and go, oh, that makes sense to me. Yeah, they don't go into as much detail about what different topics cover about what enta- what specific testing technique entails because the average person doesn't have the knowledge, mm-hmm. like the bio- the biological or chemistry knowledge to back up what it, what it means when they talk about uh, nucleotide short tandem repeats. See, I see the faces you're making. Because all, all I'm thinking is, well, on TV, all they say is, I just send it to the lab for testing and I got back this. <laughs> yeah. So they don't go super in-depth into the intricacies regarding it. That's what they leave people on podcasts for, for the people who are true fans of it. (laughs) Yeah. But that can also be considered a disadvantage because now jurors will tend to put more weight on forensic evidence and demanding more of it. And doing so, they raise the burden of proof for prosecutors. And isn't there only so many tests you can run before you run out of material you can test? Yep. That's an issue with the Jean Benet Ramsey case is to have a little bit of DNA left, but... There's a group of people who are saying that our updated technology now, we can get a result if we test it. But there's also people saying that if we test it, it's going to use up the last remaining bit of the sample. So if we get no results, then we're no further than we were a year ago and there's no more sample to test. Okay. So it can also make the prosecution's job a lot harder because they must prove guilt without a doubt to a jury who believes themselves experts in the field by simply watching an abundance of crime shows. Well, I mean, we've probably all been down that YouTube rabbit hole of weird traits or skills, and we now think that we know everything. Yeah, so it's a lot of self-proclaimed experts in the field, apparently. (laughs) There have even been cases where jurors demand unnecessary forensic tests. Really? Yeah. Jurors like this, considered television educated is what they're called, Mm -hmm. are more likely not to convict a person because procedures from a television show were not used. So they because they so didn't dust they, it for prints. Or they want like every forensic test used to to give physical evidence and to document that evidence and get a result from it. When not every test is is necessary for each kind of case. So the prosecution will present this evidence, and the jurors will be like, "Yeah, but source." Yeah, basically. <laughs> 
So this can be especially troublesome when shows actually create new techniques specifically for views. And I'm sure that's probably done out of convenience for the plot of the episode or whatever, but yep. it can be detrimental to potential jurors, like you mentioned. Yep, in a little bit, I'm actually going to go into a deep dive of specific shows and what they correctly and incorrectly portray. Because I'm guessing you had a lot of fun researching this one, because it's just an excuse to watch some of your favorite TV shows. <laughs> yep. So, some tests jurors demand include handwriting analysis and gunshot residue tests when they're not always necessary. Like, for a robbery, a handwriting test is not always going to be necessary because you don't always have a copy of the suspect's handwriting that was found on scene. You don't have that questioned sample. So why would you need to do a handwriting test if there's no sample to question? And plus, if they're asking for that in court, then the person who's accused could just alter their handwriting slightly so that way it doesn't line up perfectly. Because then if these jurors are, as you say, nitpicky, then they're probably going to say, oh, it doesn't, it's not a 100% match. It could be someone else. So this heightens demand puts strain on law enforcement and crime labs who get backed up, and it already takes forever to run specific tests, but it's now going to take a lot longer to run these necessary tests because they're also plagued with running these unnecessary tests to make the jurors happy. But I saw that's how the Unabomber got caught was because they used handwriting analysis. Like, okay, yeah, but how's that going to work on a convenience store robbery when they have video evidence of the person that did it? Exactly. In that situation, a handwriting analysis would not be considered necessary because they have video proof of the, of the suspect. Handwriting analysis was a revolutionary a tactic. I think you guys mentioned it in one of the earlier episodes. It was because, episode the, the, because the Unabomber had never shown his face and they had no idea who he was really. They were only able to use it because of the samples that they had. And this, and it was his brother, right, who came forward and said that he suspected it was him? It was actually his brother's wife who was who suspected him far before the brother ever did. Okay. She was she convinced the brother. If you want to hear more about the Unabomber and how handwriting how handwriting analysis. analysis and linguistics helped catch him, you guys can find that in episode three called Forensics Linguistics. Just so we don't get too off tangent. Mm-hmm. One case study states that a juror once felt that investigators did not do a thorough job because, and I quote, they didn't dust the lawn for fingerprints. And and thus the juror was not comfortable voting for conviction. How do you dust a lawn? Exactly. That's that's an example of one of those unnecessary tests. I don't even think you could dust a lawn because it's outside. Wouldn't the wind blow, like particles in the air into like onto the lawn itself then cover it up it's or? easily contaminated but also yeah. there's no point because you would have to dust every single blade of grass in there and that's a waste of resources and time that's <laughs> probably never going to happen but wouldn't it be hilarious if the if a juror makes an outrageous request like that they would allow the test to occur but the juror who requested it had to go through it all and do it themselves it's like okay you want to test every single blade of grass on this big property you go for it yeah so another document documented sorry i had a hiccup (laughs) another documented disadvantage relates to the more educated jurors the selection process for jurors has been lengthened due to the fact that some prosecutors deliberately screen for those that have an interest and watch crime television shows trying to be like uh get their 15 minutes of fame so to speak or think that they know what they're talking about they don't want people necessarily with the csi effect but that makes the juror selection process a lot longer because they have to add more questions to see what their knowledge on the subject is okay when i was in college i actually had a professor who had like a master's in 
uh, child education. And she had actually gotten, she had gotten jury duty. She was selected. And then she was told that she would not be going forward multiple times because as soon as the the juror selection committee would like ask, what do you do? And she told them, I'm a psychology professor and I have experience with this. They don't want them because they know that those professors would understand uh, the motives and other parts of that. And they would provide some shadow of a doubt. Yep. So not only does it make the process longer, it also makes it more difficult because interest in crime television shows has been on the rise. Kind of like the when Ted Bundy had his whole thing come out and there was a bunch of bandwagoners and... <laughs> Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> um, so the increase of knowledge about crime has led to jurors needing more than witness statements to convict the defendant. And that has been documented since the CSI effect began. Well, wouldn't that make sense to have more than just eyewitness testimony? Because that turns into a he said, she said situation. Right. But if you have so many people saying the same exact thing who are all witnesses, that can be... that's. It's better than nothing. Exactly. It's something that they can try to do. Studies have been conducted and revealed that jurors did have high expectations of scientific evidence. But out of the scenarios presented in different studies, it was not a prerequisite to find someone guilty. So they would find someone guilty whether or not they had been educated in the TV shows. Okay. This is like arguments for against the CSI effect existing. Okay. So studies with results like these does cause some to wonder if the CSI effect is even real. And it makes the phenomenon be considered somewhat controversial. Because if there's studies that prove that you don't need to have all this knowledge just to prove someone guilty or not guilty, it kind of does bring argument into the equation there. So in the argument for the CSI effect, it's presumed that the jurors' unrealistic expectations would cause them to incorrectly weigh the importance of the presence or absence of forensic evidence. This causes worry that jurors will be biased to do more, to be more likely to acquit without forensic evidence and more likely to convict with it. And part of this is due to the fact that forensic tests are not always 100% accurate. There is still an error percentage for every single test done, but that's why you have the scientific method and that's why you have to test it and and have peer reviews of it many, many times. And because like I said, there's still a rate of error for each and every test, but a lot of people who are television educated believe that the tests are the end all be all. They're infallible. Yep. And DNA is usually at the center of CSI effect issues with evidence. And according... Sorry, what? No, you're good. According to crime TV shows, DNA samples are easily found, contain enough sample to test, and are not contaminated. This is, the, this is incredibly far from the truth. The processing time of DNA is often portrayed as being done in-house and only taking a few hours, but DNA testing can actually... It can be done in-house, but it can also be sent out to labs, which usually have a very large backlog of tests to complete. Have you ever tried to do 23andMe? That stuff takes forever. Yeah, that's that's an example. And the television shows do portray the evidence, DNA evidence, as the end-all be-all, and that can render other evidence invalid. What kind of evidence would be rendered invalid by forensic evidence? No, specifically by DNA. Okay. So the DNA evidence would render other things invalid? That's what TV shows basically portray. Okay. And again, this cannot be further from the truth at all. So now that you're a bit familiar with the CSI effect, we're going to talk about some of the ways that this is seen in some favorite crime TV shows. The Mm -hmm. first one we're going to talk about is the one that's the show that started it all, CSI. 
So the show allowed viewers to get an inside look at what crime scene investigators and forensic scientists do, but it's not always 100% accurate in its portrayal of the careers. One of the biggest inaccuracies that I have found is the length of time it takes to get test results back. It has to happen within the 30 minutes or hour long, whatever the episode is, which probably is not the case, I'm guessing. Yep. The time spent waiting for these results may take a few hours or days in the fictional world of CSI, but in reality, this waiting period can span over months and even years, depending on how backed up the labs are. Jeez. Yeah. So that is the biggest discrepancy that I found that was very right away visible. You cannot get them, the results back, just like that. What if they put a rush order on it? No. Is there a way they could if they had like a judge's warrant or something like that? or? That I'm not sure about. Okay. So the results of these tests in general is often a point of contention in the show because the investigators always get results regardless of how likely this is, and they rarely get inconclusive results. And probably in TV shows, there's the higher-ups get, like, get pushed to the front of the line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The reality of these tests is that not all results are conclusive. Another common mistake that's portrayed is that specialty scientists will study and test evidence outside of their specialty. So if you're a blood spatter analyst and that's your specialty and that's what you do, they'll go out and test for gunshot residue. Why? Because they're technically trained in it, it's just not their specialty. And they probably do that testing so that way they don't have to get their test done so much later. So in reality, forensic scientists will remain within their specialization and not venture outside of it. Despite paperwork and documentation not being shown in the show, it is, per- it is due to it being perceived boring in nature. It's a fact that there is an abundance of paperwork required almost daily in these careers. One major inconsistency that can be spotted in the show is the creation of new scientific techniques to test evidence that is, in- that is admissible in court. Many techniques or methods will be created on the spot, quote-unquote, to help get results and either prove or disprove guilt, but this is far from factual. There is a strict process to create a new scientific technique, and it's not short or easy. First, the technique must be accepted in the general scientific community, or else the technique and the evidence are considered useless in court. The next step is to have a special hearing with the judge to explain the new technique and how accurate it is, which requires results from many different trial runs, not just from one person in, in specific. Mm-hmm. According to the to forensic scientist Thomas Moriello, 40%, sorry, 40% of the scientific techniques used in CSI do not even exist. <laughs> no yep. wonder so many people are misinformed. Mm-hmm. Hey, go do this test. That's a fictional thing. And the prosecutor just looks at them like, that's not real. Yeah. That's called movie magic. Movie magic. And on top of this, the show does not make it clear that crime scene investigator and forensic scientist are separate careers. The investigators are the ones that go on scene while the scientists stay in the lab and do not always get context of the evidence that they must process. And that's due to present to prevent any bias. <laughs> In short, this television show glorifies the role of forensic scientists by making them appear to be the front runners of a criminal investigation. They do perform a very important role, but should not completely overshadow crime scene investigators. Forensic scientists are also often kept separate from the case itself, and this is done to ensure that the scientists 
are able to run their tests free of bias to get objective results that will hold up in court. Because if the forensic scientist is looking for something specifically, then they could ignore certain other things that might be contributing factors and choose to exclusively look at what they believe is the reason. Exactly. So, so now we're going to take... I'm sorry, go ahead. So it's kind of like the forensic scientists are participating in like a double-blind study. Mm-hmm. They yeah. don't know what this test is for. And they what know that it's for. for a crime, but they just don't know. They don't know what they're looking for. They just need to find out what's there. Yep. So now we're going to take a look at another show, and this show happens to be my mother's favorite show. Bones. Bone, dong, dong. So the popular TV show Bones follows the career of forensic anthropologists. And as entertaining as the show might be, it's filled with inaccuracies about the real life of this career. One of the show's creators has stated that the technologies, methodologies, and terminologies used in the show are accurate, but certain pieces of technology are not completely accurate or widely available for use in the field. So like they might be referencing a super specialized piece of equipment that they just have readily accessible when in reality there might be like only a handful of in the real world? Yep, I do have an example to help. Perfect. The Angelatron. I'm guessing that's not a robot named Angela. It's one such piece of technology that has been dramatized specifically for entertainment purposes. In real life, the technology is very scarce due to the high price. But the Angelatron, according to forensic anthropologist and Bones producer Kathy Reiches, is a 3D holographic reconstruction apparatus. So it's like a me- industrial-grade medical uh, 3D printer for forensic evidence. Kinda. That's like a gross mm. oversimplification. Gross oversimplification. I just watch TV. <laughs> so it is a piece of equipment that does exist, but it's been highly dramatized specifically for entertainment purposes. And so, it's not called the Angelatron. And the way they have it in the show is that the character Angela came up with and created the process herself. Okay. So then there probably is something out there that's real that can recreate certain aspects of forensic evidence or like recreate certain things that could be tested, but it doesn't do what the show says it does. Yeah. So while this technology does exist, it is near impossible to determine a victim's race solely from a skull. There are certain characteristics that do present more in different races, but you can't completely... 100% 100% say that this person is from Asian descent. Okay. You would need more than just a skull. Okay. So forensic anthropologists do see and deal with a lot of human bones, but it's uncommon for said bones to be part of a criminal investigation. A lot of it is humanitarian work, especially in third world countries, the Rwandan massacre. There's a lot of forensic anthropologists that go and try to identify those bones so that way the families can get them can get the remains of their loved ones back because i always thought that the most you could do with bones forensically is you could determine like the dna of who the person was as long as you had matching dna in some form of database you could test it against yeah so that's what they're doing they're having um what they call a clothing show or clothing parade where they put out the clothing that a victim was found wearing when their body was found and they try to see if any loved ones can identify saying, hey, my brother, for example, wore that shirt a lot. Then they would take a DNA test of the person that said that their brother wore it and compare it to the bones of the skeleton. That's a lot of what forensic anthropologists do. Okay. So it's not like Indiana Jones and finding lost civilizations. And- no. No. <laughs> and we will have a guest speaker at some point for forensic anthropology. Grinch. Yes. We're going to have my college roommate who 
loves forensic anthropology and she's getting her master's in anthropology. I don't know which specific section, but... And she's in Ireland. Yep, she's in Ireland. We're going to have her come on the show as a guest to tell us all about forensic anthropology one of these days. And maybe she had inspiration to go into the field because maybe she watched Bones when she was younger. I think Bones is more recent, but I don't know for sure. We'll find out when we talk to her. So in addition to the fact that it's uncommon for the bones to be part of a criminal investigation, forensic anthropologists do not first see the remains at the scene of a crime, but in a lab setting. That's more so when they're called out, if it is for a criminal investigation. Okay. The truth behind this career is that there is a very low chance that one will deal with human bones for an investigation. And though the bias of the show is accurate, I'm sorry, the The premise... While the basis of the show is accurate, the creator does claim that the show is a work of fiction and thus most of the science is exaggerated. One other major thing that the show gets wrong is identifying a skeleton successfully after identifying simple traits such as age and sex. The real job of a forensic anthropologist includes many more tests and identifications to be carried out before confirming the identity of the remains. Is there anything besides DNA that you could actually easily tell with a bone test? It's usually DNA and or dental records. Okay. But I'm not a forensic anthropologist, so that's why we're going to have a whole episode dedicated specifically to the subject. Sounds good to me. Okay, so the next show we're going to look at is NCIS, and it's actually the first show that introduced me to forensics. Okay. The successful television show NCIS shows the lives of special agents within the NCIS department. One of the main struggles of the characters is the constant dispute over which department has jurisdiction, yet this is not as commonly seen in real life for the agents. The reality is that the special agents are known to work together with both military and civilian agencies. Like previous careers mentioned, the real life of a special agent includes a lot of paperwork, which is not always portrayed in the show. And that's largely done due to the fact that paperwork is not interesting or entertaining. And the episodes would probably be three hours long each if they included all the paperwork that has to go through. At least that. (laughs) Yeah. NCIS Communications Director, as of 2016, Marianne Cummings, explains that there are some similarities between the show and the real life of NCIS special agents. One example being that the agents are all like a family, both in the fictional world and the real one. They're all very close, take care of each other, and it's more than just that coworker friendship. But Cummings does claim that the television show is entertainment and does not portray their lives with complete accuracy. NCIS special agents are actually not the first ones to arrive on the scene, as is usually seen in some episodes. The local police department of the Navy police would show up first, and then they would request the special agents. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. Because they don't have the, the footwork or the foot grunts to walk around, basically. That's what the, the blue-collar uh, regular police officers would do. Mm-hmm. One real-life NCIS special agent, though, does claim that the television show NCIS Los Angeles is the most accurate to his day-to-day career. And this is due to the fact that it often involved with counterterrorism, protective operations, general crimes, economic crimes, and fraud. Okay. So it's more like preparing for crimes or like stopping active threats? Or mm-hmm. preventing Rather them. than murder. Okay. And the last show that we're going to talk about is one of my favorites, Criminal Minds. <laughs> I actually did this part of the research when I was still in high school because I wanted to figure out how close the job in real life was to the show. And not because you had a crush on Spencer Reed. Everyone does. He's got great hair. In some seasons. <laughs> 
In the first season. <laughs> so in the hit show Criminal Minds, the FBI has a separate department called the Behavioral Analysis Unit where agents are able to profile a suspect and help narrow down potential suspects of a crime. While cases in the show are loosely based on real-life crimes, the show is known to quote-unquote glamorize the career of such an agent. The biggest misconception from the show is that while the fictitious FBI has a position called profiler, as of 2020, there was no such job in real life. There's no job in the FBI called profiler. Would the closest be like their regular like specialists? Or? The job title is actually criminal psychologists or behavioral analysts. And okay. rather than spending time at the scene, which is seen in almost every single Criminal Minds episode... They're probably stuck behind looking at the paperwork description. The reality of the job consists of staying in an office to work. Of course it is. And that would not make for great television. No, of course not. I mean, the office was pretty good. and They just sat inside on their in the office. But that's different. That focused on the lives of the co-workers. This focuses on not just the lives of the workers, but also the crimes that they solve. And the deaths of the people. No spoilers. <gasps> a show about criminal mi- called Criminal Minds deals with criminals and dead people? Oh no, you ruined it for me. Oh, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> it's uncommon for behavioral analysts to participate in field work as they, and they do not aid in the field chasing down suspects, which is seen in many of the episodes. It sounds more like they would be in the office looking at the description of the person and trying to go through a lot of background checks and looking yeah, them up on social media. Yeah, the chasing down people is usually the special agents. Mm-hmm. The CSI effect has caused a large misconception that is seen throughout the show as well. The length of time it takes to solve a case. Oh, yeah. Because they have to make sure it fits within that hour block on television. Otherwise, you're only going to get part of the episode. Imagine how if they tried to make it as real as possible and every episode was like part one of seven and they were like three hours long. Yeah, that's probably a lot more accurate. But that would not make for good television. Often throughout the show, it's seen that the cases are solved in a matter of days. The truth behind this unrealistic standard is that it can take days, months, or even years to solve and complete just one case, and not every case is able to be solved. There are, there are many different cold cases that are open in every jurisdiction. And sometimes it just is because they don't have the right technology to test it out. Exactly. Because there was, I remember you mentioning that there was uh, new evidence was brought to light recently that exonerated someone. That's a lot of what the Innocence Project deals with. Yeah, and so because there's the new technology now, they're able to go back and look at those cold files and look at those cases where they couldn't do anything, and that was because they didn't have the technology at the time. Mm-hmm. And I will cover an episode. <clears throat> we will have an episode that covers the Innocence Project, who they are, what they stand for, what they do to help others. So the most common portrayal of the agency on the show is that they get to fly on a private jet to get to the locations of crimes. Of course, that would be expensive. That is seen on almost every single episode. They're like, wheels up in 20, and they have to have a go bag ready. That is not what behavioral analysts do. It's not one that requires them to travel across the country. And despite the inaccuracies in the portrayal of behavioral analysts, the show is accurate in portraying other aspects of the jobs. And one of the ways is seen that interviews of inmates do take place. And while the real job does not particularly entail physically going and conducting the the interviews to gather data, conducting research on the criminals is done to add to a larger piece of research. So they may not be the ones going and interviewing the 
inmates, but they might be the ones that write the questions and do the analysis of the results. And they might also definitely watch the tapes that they're recording the interviews with to see if yeah. any of their behavior would suggest something that they're lying. There was actually a TV show. It's, it's fiction, but it's called Lie to Me. It stars Tim Roth. And it's talking about the science behind micro-expressions. And I remember you telling me about this. It's a fantastic show. And the guy, he's a... He's a psychologist who spent like over 20 years in many different cultures around the world doing his research. And he actually went to like these indigenous tribes in like Africa and like these tribes that were like uncontacted by the modern world. And he photographed them doing different expressions. And when he compared those expressions between that, that very indigenous tribe to like modern day, the West and all around the world he found that there were very common characteristics that indicated what someone could be thinking because they have these micro-expressions that are too fast for the brain to stop and think. And so yep. that's probably what the behavior analyst is looking at when they're looking at the um, recordings of the interview. Obviously not the micro-expressions, but maybe like there's a certain tell that they're doing whenever they're lying. Kind of like in poker, you look for someone's tell. You analyze their behavior. <gasps> they're a behavior analyst. <laughs> so that the research that's done on criminals is done because the field of criminal psychology is relatively new, so the research will continue to add to the references and provide data for future analysis. Some scenes of the show do portray agents surrounded by piles and piles of paperwork. That's probably accurate. Oh yeah, and struggling <laughs> to sift through them to find a clue or even decide on what case to start on. This is an accurate portrayal of their job. The real-life job of criminal psychologist or behavioral analyst consists of researching or working at a desk with large amounts of paperwork. I would also assume that they're probably brought in to testify in court a lot of the time. Yep, so that's the episode. Hope you learned something. I did, and now I'm still thinking that I know everything because I saw TV that one time, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who thinks that. But now if I ever get called for jury duty, I know to check my bias at the door, so to speak, and think, you know, maybe we don't need to dust for prints on every single blade of grass before <laughs> to prove that this person was really there when we have their blood and other stuff that was already there. But yeah, I had fun. Awesome. This, this is always one of my favorite topics to, to research just because there's so much information out there and you can look at any TV show, any crime TV show. It's just an excuse for you to watch more TV. More true crime. <laughs> More true crime TV, mm-hmm. which you grew up on and is one of the reasons you got started in your field now. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You guys can always send us an email at lllivermortis at gmail.com. If you want to leave us with any cases that you want us to cover, please like, subscribe, and leave us a review. Let us know what we're doing well, what we're doing wrong, because we are, we are very open to constructive criticism. Yeah, but like, don't just say, this sucks. Okay, why? It does. Why? I don't know. Let us know how we can improve. (laughs) Uh, You guys can listen to the podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. We even have a TikTok that's live.laugh.liver with an O-R, not an E-R. And our Instagram is livelaughlivermortis. Do you have anything else to add? Should we start a YouTube channel and upload our podcast to YouTube? Maybe. Let us know if that's something you guys would be interested in. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's all from me. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Live, Laugh, Live, or Mortis. Thanks for listening.